when you look at THC, that's really the chemical I'll call it that drives intoxication for marijuana and drives all of those negative effects, the IQ symptoms, the cognitive performance, the depression, the anxiety, the impairment um, that can lead to accidents by driving. All of that is mediated through THC. When you and I were young, the potency, the THC potency of that weed was about one-seventh to one-tenth of what we have today. So you would have to smoke 10 times the amount of marijuana, of 80s marijuana, to get the THC load that our kids are getting today from the potency of marijuana that's on the street. That's why we're seeing a concentration of the negative effects more than we did during the flower power times because they were smoking tons of weed. It just was not as potent. Welcome to Hopestream, a podcast for moms and dads who have kids with substance use disorder or who are in treatment or early recovery. I'm Brenda Zane, fellow mom to a child who battled an addiction to drugs and who almost died from multiple fentanyl overdoses. So I see you and I feel your pain, and I created this space for people just like us. Hopestream is a space where we focus on you, your health, sanity, and well-being, And I also bring expert resources to help you navigate this scary and confusing world of teen and young adult substance use. This is where you'll find your tribe, and I'm really glad to have you with me. So let's get into today's episode. But first, this episode is supported by The Stream. You might be listening to this podcast and wondering who else out there is dealing with the kinds of issues you are. Well, there are thousands of moms just like you who are struggling to help their kids and who want to have a more positive, personal, and supportive place to connect with other moms who get it. The Stream is an online pay-what-you-can membership where moms who have kids struggling with substance use focus on their own health, wellness, and sanity with no judgment and no distraction because it's not on Facebook. We have weekly events, a book club, yoga classes, workshops, and great conversations. Being a member of the stream gives you an even deeper connection beyond the podcast where you get to interact with amazing moms and me every day. So if you'd like to hang out with us after the episodes, you can learn more and join us at brendazane.com forward slash the stream. The first two weeks are always free. Then you pay whatever you can. I would truly love to see you there. Now for today's episode. Welcome back. How are you? I'm so glad that you're listening today because this episode is going to answer a lot of questions you may have about marijuana. It's a topic that I have found is really confusing for parents because it's so prevalent. It's legal for recreational use in, I think, 15 or more states now. And yet we know that it cannot be good for our kids' brains. So I went on a mission to find the right person to talk with about all things cannabis. And I found the most brilliant yet human doctor, and she explains it all in terms that we can understand. My guest today is not only the mom of two teenagers, which is helpful for getting reality-based information, but she is also board certified in psychiatry and addiction medicine, and she's the co-founder 
and Chief Medical Officer of Eleanor Health, which offers comprehensive substance use disorder care, including medication, therapy, and connection to resources. She also hosts her own podcast called In Recovery, which is, I would say, hands down one of the best podcasts out there talking about all forms of addiction, not just drugs and alcohol. And she is just an all-around rock star. So with that, I would love to introduce you to and have you hear really valuable information from my very special guest today, Dr. Nzinga Harrison. Dr. Nzinga Harrison, I'm so thrilled to have you with me today. I'm a fan of your podcast, um, so it's very exciting for me to have you on HopeStream. So thank you for making the time to come and be with me. Wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. Well, I, I have stalked your, uh, your podcast. It's so great because you're just so down to earth and real and you don't beat around the bush. And it's just, I think it's exactly what people need to hear. So I loved hearing kind of your style. And then you did an episode called Actually Weed is Addictive. I believe that was the title of it. And I just was like, that's it. I'm calling her up. I got to get her on my podcast. <laughs> that was what got you. It was, it was because, so I, I have this community, um, you know, an online community for moms who have kids who range from, you know, they just found a little baggie of weed in the backpack all the way through to, you know, to they have a kid who's 15 years in addiction. And so just one of the questions that comes up consistently is this topic of marijuana. And so, um, you know, looking for somebody who could really speak to that topic um, from lots of different angles, because you, I know, deal with addiction, not just drug and alcohol addiction, but all kinds of and forms of addiction. I just thought you'd be a great person to address this topic. Awesome. Let's jump in. Yeah. Before we do that, I'd like to ask a question just to let people get to know you a little bit better. And that is, what did you want to be when you were growing up? Well, I wanted to be a doctor. You did. Um, mission accomplished. When I was, uh, <laughs> Check. <laughs> I know, right? Checkbox, what's next? Um, I actually, when I was little, said I would be a doctor and a teacher. So I think mission accomplished on both of those check boxes, I hope. But I originally thought pediatrics, then oh. I thought surgery, and then I fell into my love, which is psychiatry and addiction medicine. So uh -huh. not exactly what I envisioned, but definitely the right place. Yeah. What was it about psychiatry and addiction medicine that kind of hooked you? So um, I did not know anything about psychiatry except for this concept of Freud, lay on my couch, tell me about your mother, right. um, which is very important. Like I am not disparaging that, but did not tap my scientist, physiology, chemistry, biology bone. Mm. And so when I got to medical school, and I should say growing up, um, I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana in the 80s, which was a super racist time. Mm. Dad was commander of the local Black Panther militia. Wow, your dad was? My dad. I know, right? Oh, how cool is that? Uh, yes. Um, and so that put activism in my bones. My mom was a public school teacher and also an activist. And so kind of activism and, and 
advocacy and standing up for oppressed and marginalized people was baked into me growing up. And so when I did my psychiatry rotation in medical school, which is one of the required rotations that every medical student has to do to earn your MD, then I learned the science and the biology and the neurobiology and the physiology of the brain and the body as it related to thinking and feeling and behaving. And I was like, I'm hooked. And then I saw the absolute just horrible way that medical systems treated people that had psychiatric illnesses. And especially if there was also a drug disorder and that tapped to my advocacy bone. And I was like, clearly I was built for this. Nice. That is so awesome. That's so cool. How does that work? Do you first get an MD and then you just, you know, while you're at it, add a PhD in psych? Like, how does that actually work from an educational standpoint? Yeah. So I don't have a PhD. So PhDs are psychology. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And okay. physicians that specialize in psychiatry um, are psychiatrists. So you go to medical school and that can be uh, medical school can go one of two pathways. You can end with an MD, which is a medical doctorate, or you can end with a DO, which is um, a doctor of osteopathy, um, both of which are physicians. And then overseas, there are different degrees. So this is the U.S. process. But you do your four years of college and then you do your four years of medical school where you have to learn competency in every single system in the body. So cardio, heart, lungs, GI, belly, intestines, surgery, emergency medicine, OB, psychiatry, all of the specialties, you get a baseline competence. And then you graduate medical school and you have your doctorate degree, whether that's MD or DO. Oh, got it. After that, you specialize. So you specialize in emergency medicine or family medicine or pediatrics or psychiatry or obstetrics and gynecology. And so I did four years of psychiatry training after my MD and now I'm a psychiatrist. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Well, you've spent a lot of time in school. Yeah. And I'm only 21. <laughs> That's remarkable. <laughs> well, you, you, you kind of look like you're 21. So I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't put that past you, but, uh, okay. That's, that's amazing. Um, in itself, we could have a whole conversation about that, but, um, back to our topic of marijuana and, and I did ask the moms in my community, I, I posted, um, you know, I'm talking to this doctor and I would love to know what questions you have. And I think it's just hard because there it's, as you know, legal in, I think it's 15 states now from a recreational standpoint. And, you know, the the party line from kids is, oh, you know, it's legal. You're just overreacting. And so it's very complicated for parents because I know from my son's experience and, and his friends and a lot of the kids that I know, a deeper addiction can start with the experimentation with marijuana. So I think that's kind of the fear that's in the background of all these moms' heads, which is why it becomes so, so big. Um, So I guess like the first question that they all had is, is there a genetic risk for or predisposition to addiction? And then if there is kind of what is the difference between dependence and addiction? Because I think that gets really confusing for the average Joe person. So the answer to the first question, is there a genetic 
predisposition to addiction? The answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Bold underscore exclamation point font size 48. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there is. Yeah. That is okay. That's interesting. That's I, it's really interesting to hear because I think I haven't heard that be so clearly punctuated in in a lot of places. And so that's really, really interesting. So from a medical standpoint, you know that. That is exactly right. And the reason that's so important is because knowing that piece of information gives you the power to practice an ounce of prevention. So substance use disorders function just like every other chronic medical condition we have. I'm talking about high blood pressure, asthma, diabetes. And so when you look at any chronic medical illness, there's a genetic part. You're born with it. It's in your DNA. You got it from your mama, as they say in the songs. And there's the environmental part. This is like nature. People say nature versus nurture. And I say, yes, nature and nurture always. And so the the portion of addiction and substance use disorders that is inherited is about 40%. It's between 40 and 60%, depending on what medical studies you look at. That is actually a little bit higher than the inherited risk for high blood pressure. It's a little bit higher than the inherited risk for asthma. It's about the same as the inherited risk for type 2 diabetes. And so my... Um, I have a very, very significant family history of addiction. And so now as a psychiatrist, I could look back and be like, I was destined to be a psychiatrist, but um, (laughs) tons of addiction in my family. And so when I talk to my kids about addiction, we've been talking about it since they're about three and four years old, is you have a genetic predisposition to developing addiction. So your friend may be able to do a line of cocaine and be fine. Your risk analysis about that line of cocaine is different. Your friend might be able to smoke marijuana every day and be fine. Your risk calculation about that marijuana is different purely because of your DNA. I gave it to you. That is so fascinating. And so, like you said, so important because if our kid did have a predisposition to diabetes, we would start talking about that, like you said, when they were little, and we would adjust their diet and we would get preventative medical care. So that is, that is incredible. So, and you know, it's um, kind of cool about knowing that too, as a fact is it just makes it easier to have a conversation with a, say a teenager or a tween because it isn't like, oh, it's the drug talk. It can just be part of this is how we stay healthy, right? We to prevent obesity, we work out to prevent this, we need to stay away from these particular things. So to me, it feels like it can kind of normalize it a little bit. It takes the stigma out of it. And the other way it takes the stigma out of it is because I'm saying to you, this is my DNA too. Yeah. Like this is my DNA. I gave it to you. I'm I'm doing great in life. Part of the reason I'm doing great in life is because I knew my risk. And so that helped with the choices that I make to try to keep me safer, even though, you know, I still did my share of for sure at risk drinking. Um, Right. But 
And did your parents talk to you about it when you were growing no, up? No, my parents did. I don't, I don't remember that at all. So I apologize if they did, because I remember I just brought my kids on my own podcast and they were like, I was like, how old were you when we started talking about drugs? And they were like, maybe last year. And I was like, what? <laughs> that is accurate. So if my parents listen and you did talk to me about drugs and I don't remember it, then I apologize for mischaracterizing. I love it. Um, I but love what, it. But you don't remember it being like a conversation no. about your DNA and your oh, family no, it history. It definitely no. was not DNA. But, um, and this is on my mom's side, where, well, we have um, drug addiction on both my mom's side and my dad's side. But on my mom's side, it was very much like we all knew those of our family members who were dealing with addiction. And it was the compassionate, you can always come home, which is like my approach as a psychiatrist now. I definitely got it from growing up. So it wasn't hidden. We all knew this family member mm. is struggling with addiction. We love them anyway. They can always come home, but this is what they're going through type of thing. Okay, so then my question is, the other 50 to 60% of people who don't necessarily have that gene, what about them? Like, can they still become addicted or do they just have less of a chance? Um, okay, so let me correct just a little bit. You said the other 60% of people. So it's not that 40% of people have a risk of addiction and 60% of people don't. It is instead one individual human being, 40% of that individual's chance of developing addiction is driven by their family history. Oh, big distinction. Yeah, so it's an important distinction because just purely because of our culture in the United States, every single person has some risk of addiction because we romanticize marijuana. We romanticize alcohol. We even call hard, dangerous drug use, quote, partying, which makes it sound fun. And so right. just culturally, all of us is at risk. There are different things in the environment that can um, that can temper that risk. So if I can tweak your question just a little bit and say, okay, if my risk is 40 to 60% and I know there's a lot of, um, the risk is 40 to 60% and I don't know anybody in my family who has had drug addiction, am I still at risk? The answer is yes. Okay. Got it. You may be less at risk. You are less at risk than a person with a stacked family history like me but you are still at risk because innately drugs have biologically addicting properties that any animal, not just human being, rats, monkeys get addicted to right. drugs. Okay. That's really, that's a very good distinction. Thank you for that. Um, Cause I think there, there can be a tendency to think, Oh, well, I don't know, nobody, no, nobody in my family's got it. So I'm good to go. Um, but that sounds like that is mm -hmm. definitely not, not the way to be thinking. Definitely not. Okay, got it. So then um, when we're thinking about teens, you know, people who are, let's say, 13, you know, up to 18 or so, because after 18, we lose a little bit of our ability <laughs> to control <laughs> what's going on. Um, if it only happens at 18. Yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, there is this, there is sort of this cultural um, attitude. And I'm up in Washington state. I live in Seattle. And so we're very, very um, liberal and marijuana, you know, legal um, 
for recreational use. And there's just sort of this attitude of like, yeah, you know, it's just weed. It's fine. Um, but when you're thinking about an adolescent brain, I think there's obviously there's a reason why they made it legal at 21. I can't say that that's right or wrong because I don't know. But um, I'm imagining that in a younger brain, there's more risk for for damage then there is an older brain. And is there more risk for addiction? Like, how does that work? You're exactly right. That's exactly why the number is 21. Um, and that's more because we already have 21 for alcohol. We know that the brain continues to develop well into your mid-20s. So if we were doing it purely on brain science, that number would probably be 26 years old. Mm. Um, but 21 years old already exists. So I'll take it because, right. yes, the younger a person starts using, the more impact there is on the brain. Um, we know that, and I'll slide your number, you said 13 because talking talking about teenagers, but I'll actually slide that down to um, 10 years old if we can, so that we can capture okay. our preteens. Yeah, We know that our preteens and teens that are using marijuana regularly have poor school performance. They have increased depression. They have increased anxiety. They have increased symptoms consistent with ADHD. It's impossible to tease apart ADHD from the cognitive effects of marijuana, which are very similar. Mm -hmm. We know that our 16 plus year olds who are using marijuana regularly are driving under the influence and that contributes to accidents and death. And we know that um, when young people start using heavily, so this is like heavy daily use, um, earlier than the age of 14, that predicts actually a loss of eight IQ points. That mm. predicts lower educational attainment. That predicts being on public assistance and Medicaid. That predicts difficulty in occupation later in life. So the earlier our kids start regularly using marijuana, the consequences stack up on them. I'm sorry, I should say using it heavily because it's an important distinction. And is heavily, what is that? Heavily is daily, What's multiple a... times per day. Okay. That's actually really terrifying. Um, I don't want to just gloss over that because I have so many questions. That's really terrifying to hear all of those those things that are happening, because that's definitely not what kids are thinking when they're hanging out after school, um, smoking. And, and, you know, granted, they can't think that far ahead, but that's really fascinating. And is the product that kids are using today, I say kids, but I mean, you know, young people, is it a, is it a fundamentally different product than like I went to high school in the 80s? I don't know that it was the same, but I've heard that it's much stronger, much different. Is that true? It is true. So whole marijuana leaf has um, hundreds of different compounds in it, um, but we can pull out the biggest two, which are THC, which um, most people have heard of, and CBD. When you look at THC, that those that's really the chemical, I'll call it, that drives intoxication from marijuana and drives all of those negative effects that I just described to you, the IQ symptoms, the cognitive performance, the depression, the anxiety, the impairment um, that can lead to accidents by driving. All of that is mediated through THC. 
when you and I were younger, I'm just making the assumption that I'm not older than you, which might. No, I'm older than you. (laughs) (laughs) I was in, I was in high school in the eighties. Okay. okay. It got me by a little bit. Yeah. Um, Back then the potency, the THC potency of that weed was about one seventh to one tenth of what we have today. So you would have to smoke 10 times the amount of marijuana of 80s marijuana to get the THC load that our kids are getting today from the potency of marijuana that's on the street. And that's why we're seeing a concentration of the negative effects more than we did during the flower power times because they were smoking tons of weed. It just was not as potent. Got it. That is wow, because I know there's so many different sort of um, form factors. So smoking it versus dabbing versus vaping versus edibles. I'm assuming that just based on the physiology of your body, that that's having a different impact is is one worse than the other. Like if you were to say eating, it's going to be less impactful or harmful. Kind of what's the story with all these different form factors? Yeah. So I practice what's called harm reduction. And it means I take care of people who are using drugs, even while they're still using drugs. So a lot of a lot of treatment programs require you to stop using to be able to be in treatment. And we're like, no, we can reduce harm even while a person is using. So with the caveat being, as long as we're talking about the same amount and the same frequency of marijuana, then the order that it goes in is smoking whole leaf is the most dangerous. The reason it's the most dangerous is because anything you burn and inhale into your lungs is increasing the risk for lung damage. Anything that you burn is increasing the risk for cancer, increasing the risk for asthma. Anything that you inhale, your lungs have the largest network of blood vessels. And short of shooting it straight into your vein, that is the fastest way to deliver a chemical to your brain. The faster you deliver it to your brain, the faster the high comes, the more uh, risk of getting addicted. Okay. Okay. So smoking is the most dangerous because it's the fastest and burning anything and putting in your body is introducing cancer risk and burning anything and inhaling it into your lungs is just asking for badness from your lungs. Right. So there's that. Move to vaping. Vaping is inhaling steam. So you're still going to get that fast, rapid effect because you're going through the, uh, the blood vessels in the lungs we call capillaries. So you're going through the capillary systems in the lungs, delivering that to your brain fast for a quick high. That's increasing the risk of addiction, but you're not burning it. So I'll take it. That's a step in the right direction. Okay. Right. You're still inhaling it. So lungs are still irritated and inflamed by vaping. The other part of vaping is that there are other chemicals in that vaping cartridge that we have to worry about that we're still learning about. And that was the vaping scare we had with young people going in the ICU and dying from from like severe inflammation of their lungs. Mm. That was not marijuana, but those are the other chemicals in the vaping cartridge that we have to worry about. Still, I'll take it over smoking the whole plant. Then you get to edibles and 
edibles is the safest way to take a whole marijuana plant because you eat it. It goes through your stomach, (laughs) which like gets through the acid, right? Right. Makes it through the acid. Then your liver clears out probably about two thirds of it. Then it has to go through your gut and it takes this really slow path. And then eventually it gets to your brain and the high comes on kind of like slow and isn't very intense. That reduces the risk of addiction because it takes so long and your liver clears out most of the dose before it gets there. You don't have the risk to your lungs. You're not introducing the cancer risk because you're not burning anything and putting it in your body. And so edibles are the least harmful way to take plant, marijuana, whole plant, followed by vaping, followed by smoking. That was a long answer, but did it make sense? It made total sense. And I think that's really, really helpful to understand the what's going on in your body when you consume that in various ways. So that's super, super helpful. Um, and I think it's interesting what you said, kind of going back to the ADHD, because I know from our family's experience and so many that these you know younger kids are getting diagnosed with ADHD they try, you know, a Ritalin or Focalin or one of these medications and hate them because they make them feel weird or whatever. Not all, but some, like in, in our family's experience, that medication didn't work. But then they find weed and it's like, mom, this is the only time I feel normal. This is the only time I can, my brain isn't jumping around. And, you know, so they're used, definitely using it to self-medicate for ADHD. But then what you're saying is, and I don't know if this is if there's a time frame for it, but it's actually going to make it worse, right? It's that's that's isn't a way to self medicate for ADHD. Is that right? That is exactly right. And a lot of our young people who are having ADHD symptoms also have significant anxiety burden that is not necessarily rising to a diagnostic threshold. Like you don't get a diagnosis of anxiety because we don't see that impairing your schoolwork. We see your concentration symptoms impairing your schoolwork. But when they smoke the marijuana, a lot of times what they're experiencing is a relief of that anxiety. Mm. And that's why they feel their thoughts pull together. Because think about when you're anxious and overwhelmed and you're like, oh, like, just take a minute, take a deep breath, try to get my thoughts together. That's how anxiety affects our thoughts too. And so you smoke that marijuana and you think marijuana is treating my ADHD. It's probably more likely treating anxiety, which we know 100% absolutely is the case. That's the CBD and the marijuana. What we also know is that with regular use, THC makes cognitive performance worse. So it makes ADHD symptoms worse. It makes anxiety worse. THC does. And for those who are genetically predisposed to psychotic symptoms, it can actually cause psychosis, paranoia being the main type of psychosis. Okay, because that was another question that a lot of the the moms in in my community had was about psychosis because they are seeing it in their kids and the kids are saying, I'm just smoking weed or I'm vaping or whatever. They swear, you know, I'm not, I'm not taking anything else. Yet they're seeing this really scary level of psychosis. So is that a new thing or because I I don't remember hearing that. I mean, not that I was really involved in in the marijuana culture in high school, but 
is this a new thing with the psychosis or what, what's the story with that? Yeah. So the, the story with that is that 10 times, seven to 10 times potency story again. Oh, right. So um, THC is what we call psychotogenic means it can cause psychosis. And so the more potent the marijuana you're smoking, the smaller the dose you will have to smoke to be at risk for developing those psychotic symptoms. If your brain is already predisposed or at risk for psychosis, so you have a family history of psychosis or you've had psychosis yourself, then even less marijuana you would have to smoke to be at risk for developing psychosis. But the third thing is, if you're buying your marijuana off the street, you have no idea what you're using. Right. Marijuana is being cut with so many different things. And so this is another harm reduction intervention that I make with my folks who are using marijuana. So I try to move them from smoking to vaping to edibles to CBD. That's like my, that's my trajectory. <laughs> I love that. The to like go down the harm trajectory. The, Dr. The, Harrison path to yeah, better. Dr. Harrison path to safer use of marijuana. <laughs> um, the other thing is, and this is the beautiful upside of marijuana legalization is that I can point a person to a dispensary where that marijuana is regulated, where I know you're not getting embalming fluid, which is calm, common, oh, where I know you're not getting PCP, <gasps> which is common, where I know you're not getting MDMA, which is common, where I know you're not getting cocaine, which is common, where I know you're not getting fentanyl, which will overdose and kill you when all you were trying to do was smoke a joint. So I try to get people away from their dealer to a dispensary so that I can remove that part of the risk. Wow. Yeah, that is super, super scary. I didn't know that my son overdosed from fentanyl and I, he lived, um, but I, I didn't know that you were, that they were finding marijuana with, fentanyl cutting. Oh my goodness. I'm talking about everything. So we do. I'm the chief medical officer and co-founder of Eleanor Health. We take care of people with uh, substance use disorder, not adolescents yet. So come back to me. (laughs) Every mom listening is is like looking you up right now. We're we're close. We're only about a quarter away. So go to the website, take a look. We'll keep you updated because we want to be taking care of our kiddos. But we do drug screens, you know, like thousands of drug screens a month on the people that we're taking care of. And the number of times we get a drug screen and that person is like, okay, yes, I used that, but I didn't use any of those other things that are in there. And it's true. They didn't intentionally use them, but it was in the marijuana you bought, or it was in the heroin that you bought and you had no idea that it had been cut with that. It is dangerous in the street. Wow. That is really, really frightening. Yeah. And it, and especially if we're talking young people who are under 21, they're not going into a dispensary, right? They're, they're right. definitely getting it off the street. Um, so that's, that is really good for, for parents to be aware of. And I love the idea of harm reduction. And I think you should trademark your little path to safer use because I think that's brilliant. Dr. Um, <laughs> Harrison's. I can see a logo already. Um, like a little cannabis leaf. What could a parent, like how could a parent approach 
harm reduction for somebody who is under 21? Like, how does that work? This is my favorite question. So um, what I hope parents listening will get out of us talking, even if they don't get biological risk and inheritance factor and Dr. Harrison's path to harm reduction and all of this is the way to have this conversation with your teenagers. First of all, our teenagers are skeptical of us because they need to be. They're learning to think for themselves. They're learning to draw their own conclusions. It's an incredibly important part of human psychological and emotional development to develop the autonomy to make the choices for yourself. And so what we as parents have to do is not take this, I told you don't ever smoke weed because it's dangerous or you're going to die and I'm making that decision for you. And if you make a different decision, you're getting in trouble. Right. It will never work. Right. It will never work. The approach we want to take instead is I'm going to give you all the information I have. My recommendation, of course, this is what I say to my kids. If I had my choice, you would never, ever smoke weed because we have enough schizophrenia and addiction in our family for me to know how high the risk is. But I understand that you have to make your own choices. So number one, you will never get in trouble for coming to me to ask me for help if you think you're having it, if you think you're getting into risky waters. You will never get in trouble mm, for it. Love that. Number two, it is my responsibility as a parent to try to keep you safe. So you will get random drug screens. And you will get random drug screens because I don't know where you got it from. I don't know what was in it. You don't know what was in it unless we look. Number three, if you are at a party and you get stupid, stupid, stupid drunk, you can call me. No problem. Even if you don't, when you get home, I'm going to breathalyze you and I'm going to drug screen you. Just tell me what's in it. You're not going to get in trouble for what's in it. I just need to know that you can tell me because if we can't have this conversation, your risk is higher. Yeah. Number four, you are biologically loaded. (laughs) That's what I say to my kids. That depends on if it's true for your kids, but you are biologically loaded. Your friends using might not be the same as you using. So I just need you to be able to do your own risk analysis. And then you will make your decisions and you will have the consequences of those decisions. The consequence will never be that you can't come home. The consequence will never be that you can't tell me what you did. But if you start having consequences, then we know you're getting in risky waters and I'm going to try to figure out how to help. That's how I have the conversation with my kids. That's amazing. That's amazing. Because you're right, most parents do start out with the don't you ever, if I ever find out, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm pretty sure 110% of the time that does not work. And there's just shouting yeah. and yelling and then the kids are sneaking around. And it's because um, we're scared, right? Like we started this yeah. entire episode with all the scary things about marijuana. Yeah. And the the other drugs that we talk about, the scariness gets higher and higher and higher and higher as we go. Like if I had to build a scary drug chart, I would put marijuana at the bottom. That doesn't mean there's no scariness about it because we just talked about all the scariness, but we're afraid for our kids as parents. And so we 
let that fear come out in a patriarchal, patriarchal commanding way. And it's just not in keeping with what the adolescent developmental need is, which is to be able to make my own decisions. Yeah. Or to be able to trust you when I'm not sure about this decision that I can come talk to you about it without getting in trouble. Right. Right. Because what I hear from, from parents is, you know, my kid is smoking maybe not every day, but maybe three or four times a week. And I'm not really seeing any consequences from it. Should I be worried? And that's where I think it gets confusing for parents. Cause it's like, I don't know, is this Okay. And I think what you're saying is to be having the conversation to say, it might not be okay, but you just don't know. It's a little bit of Russian roulette. Is that true? Yeah, I think that is a perfect way to put it, Russian roulette. And I don't want you to shoot yourself in the head. Like if I had my druthers, you would not put the gun to your head at all. And like one of the ways to think about that is like, if we have a family history of any addiction at all, including alcohol and cigarettes, that's another bullet in the chamber. Mm-hmm. If we have any other mental health conditions in our family at all, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, ADHD, that's another bullet in the chamber. If you yeah. have experienced any trauma in your early life or any instability, or if there's any difficulty in our familial relationships, that's another bullet in the chamber. Yeah. If you don't and who doesn't have that? that? Right. Right. If you're not getting it from a dispensary, that's another bullet in the chamber. And so it's really teaching kids like if you're going to put the gun to your head. I mean, I wouldn't say it like that because that's dramatic, but, you know, metaphor. Yeah. If you're going to take the risk, at least put as few bullets in the chamber as possible. And then the other side of that is and here's how you know when you're getting in trouble. Did you used to only smoke once a week? If you're smoking four times a week now, that's a sign that you're getting in trouble. If you used to have all A's and now you have A's and B's and you're like, that's okay. It's actually a sign that you're getting in trouble. If you never used to fight with your parents and now you're fighting with your parents over weed, that's a sign that you're probably getting into risky waters. And so you arm them with that information so that when you see it, because we'll see it as parents before they do, we can come back to them and say, hey, remember when we had this conversation about red flags? I feel like I see these in you and I'm worried about it. So I want to make sure I open the opportunity for us to have this conversation. Yeah. And that's just such a better dynamic to have in the household than the secrecy and the the yelling and the drama Um that goes on. Mm-hmm. So it, it is really, to me, it sounds like a much more adult type of a conversation than an authoritative, authoritative, you will do this or you won't do that. It, it just feels like a very respectful and adult conversation to have. Yeah. And we don't necessarily usually think about approaching our kids that way, especially when I say start at 10, approach right. a 10 year old the same way. I tr- right. like, I say to my kids, I trust you to make the best decision you can make with the information that you have. I also know that you haven't been alive long enough to have all the information that you need to have. And I also know that sometimes your choices will be different than my choices. 
And I also know that we're all humans. So sometimes we'll just make bad choices. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we do. That that happens. It happens. And sometimes you say, this is what my 15-year-old says, that was a bad choice. Would do it again. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that was a bad choice. Would not make it again. I'm like, okay, so. <laughs> that's that's perfect. That's perfect. When it's it's nice. I, li- I like when you talked about you won't get in trouble if you tell me that you're struggling because that is a fear that a lot of kids have is, oh, I could never tell my mom that I'm struggling because she'll get a freak out and she's going to ship me off to wilderness therapy. And, you know, like it's going to be this massive thing. And so if you've started the conversation years earlier, or even now, if you're in the thick of it, I think that's another thing is for parents who are saying, okay, great. Well, my kid isn't 10. They're 17. They're smoking every day. How do I start this conversation with them? Because all we've been doing is yelling and screaming and shouting and hiding and fighting. Like, what would your thoughts be for somebody who's right now got a 17-year-old? They're they're pretty sure all they're doing is smoking weed. However, you never know. Could be something else. What What would you say to them? You say, hey, listen, I was listening to this podcast today. And I realized that I have been coming at you all wrong about Mm. this marijuana thing. Mm. The way I've been coming to you makes it seem like I'm mad at you and makes it seem like I don't care. When actually I'm coming at you because I care and because I'm worried and because I'm afraid. Yeah. So this is what I learned today. If you're buying your weed from the street, we don't know what's in it. We should take a look at a drug screen just so that we can know. These are the signs of addiction. I feel like I see this in you and it usually gets worse. So we should try to chop it off at the legs. But we have to be able to have a conversation about it without screaming and hollering. Mm. If we're ever going to think about doing that. Yeah. And just like open it, just like easy breezy, open it up. But just start it out with, because, you know, our kids love to hear us say like, you know, I jacked that up. I right. <laughs> I love it. They're like, oh, my God, I love for this moment. Yes. Can I record this, mom? (laughs) Right, exactly. I will go back to my kids and be like, you know what? The way I approached you earlier today was not helpful. I'm sorry about that. This is what I think it was about. Mm. So I think you just do it that way. Listen, I'm learning. I listen to this podcast. I learn. I could come at you better about this. So this is me trying to come at you in a different way. Love that. Yes, that, that is great because we all have enough enough anxiety and and all of that we don't need more in our houses and and it can i think kids we we sometimes don't give them enough credit for actually engaging with us in in a kind of a positive and constructive way we just assume it's always going to be negative it's always going to be yelling but if if we go at it like the way you just said i think sometimes we can be really surprised that they will engage um because they, you know they're living this, they're also feeling it. I know my son now; he's on the other side in recovery. But he said, "Yeah, you know, I kind of started thinking like, huh, I'm doing this every day now. I didn't used to do that." They're aware, um, and they just need an outlet, to, a, you know, a non-scary, non-freak outish outlet to be able to have the conversation. That's right. Yeah. And I tell my kids, listen, 
I don't promise not to freak out when you tell me because I don't know what you're about to tell me. Right. And it might freak me out. What I do promise to do is get control of myself. (laughs) (laughs) I might need a timeout. (laughs) Then listen and be on your side. Like you can always count on me to be on your side, but I don't promise I'm not going to freak out. You might tell me something that's freak out bubble. Right. You know? Yep. Yep. They definitely can do that. Yeah. I'm a mom. These fears run deep for us about Mm -hmm. our kids. They do. They do. I think your your comments on CBD, maybe we would have to have a part two on CBD, but oh, I wonder do. I wonder if that's something I had never, I don't know why, I've used CBD cream. I had shoulder surgery and it was really helpful because I didn't yeah. want, I didn't want to use opioids. And so I got a nice CBD, I don't know, stick. Uh-huh. Um, I wonder if that's something that, you know, you have the 17-year-old with ADHD, doesn't want to take the Ritalin and all of that. I wonder if that's something that they could try. Are any, like, doctors doing that? There are definitely doctors doing it. Um, And so, you know, CBD does not get approved by the FDA. When you're using it in kids, there are, like, different types of risks. So I think you you might be hard pressed to find a doctor to like write a kid yeah. a prescription of CBD. I write my adults, like I prescribe CBD to my adults regularly. Um, but CBD can be safely used in kids. I have a friend and it's always the worst. Like doctors hate it when people say I have a friend because right. it's like <laughs> one friend does not equal medical evidence. There's medical evidence of the safety of CBD right. and the effectiveness of CBD. And I have a friend <laughs> who started using, um, who had her son who hated his stimulant exactly the same way you did. He, I think he was around 13, started using CBD for his ADHD plus anxiety mm-hmm. and just had a, a, a beautiful experience with no side effects that likely pre- prevented the risks that come with addiction for untreated other mental health conditions. Wow. So you don't hear me on record saying Dr. Harrison said, give the kids. <laughs> no. <laughs> but on Dr. Harrison's harm reduction pathway, you heard DVD yes. down the path. It's on the path. <laughs> it's a stepping stone on the path. Direction we want to go. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh my gosh. So many questions. Um, I, I want to hear about what you're like stuff that you're working on. One last question that I don't think we covered is would a kid potentially shift an addiction? So maybe they have like a, a parent with a gambling addiction or a shopping addiction, right? So something that's not necessarily chemically based and they're smoking weed. They kind of managed to get off of that. Is it? Does that happen? Like, would a kid then maybe later in life or even just like they pick up online gambling? What What do you think about that? Yes, underscore bold italics font size 48. <laughs> okay. Exclamation point. So, okay. One thing, and this was the beautiful thing that I learned when I did my psychiatry rotation. All behavior by the time it gets in the brain is chemical and electrical. So while we think of gambling addiction as different from alcohol addiction, as different from marijuana addiction, as different from opioid addiction, it is the same neurobiological pathway. 
And so mm-hmm. if your neurobiological pathway predisposes you to addiction, it predisposes you to addiction of all sorts. Now, certain addictions will cluster in families. So there will be families that have alcohol addiction and no other drug addiction. Still, the risk for all addictions is elevated in that family, just not as high as it is elevated for alcohol. Got it. Okay. So it sounds like then the the need really is to recognize that, that, uh, do you call it a tendency or a predisposition? Yeah, I like the word predisposition or risk. Uh, okay. Because tendency tends to have the connotation of that element of choice that we mm. inaccurately ascribe to addictions. Like you could just choose to not have it. So right. I usually try to medicalize it a bit just to remind people that we're talking about brain chemistry. So I was yeah. predisposition or... Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So you just you have to know that and you have to recognize that and and know that it could apply to to something that's um you know not substance based because like you said it it is within the in the system within the body it's the same. Yeah. That's okay. I'm learning so much. This is exciting. Wow. So we have like three minutes left. What are you working on or what are you excited about? Um, there, you know, it's been a year, a year and a bit. Um, and there's been a lot of negative. What what are you excited about or what are you working on that um, has you thinking positively? Um, so I will give four of my favorite projects that I'm working on. Number one, always, is Eleanor Health, where I'm co-founder and chief medical officer. Um, So we take care of folks affected by addiction. You don't have to have it yourself. Um, Affected by or at risk for developing Mm. addiction. And um, we're in North Carolina and New Jersey. We just opened Massachusetts and Washington. And we are about to open Ohio and Louisiana So definitely look us up, eleanorhealth.com. What I really love is our commitment to the community. So even if you're not in one of the states where we're taking care of folks, or even if you don't necessarily feel like you need or want, quote, treatment, we have free online support groups for people who are using, for the loved ones of people who are using, for people who are um, not using and in recovery uh, that are just free and online, no commitment, no nothing, wow. get support. So, so awesome. That. Number two, the podcast, which is how we came to know each yes. other. Yes. In recovery with Dr. Nzinga Harrison. I absolutely love, it's a question and answer show. Um, so. It's so good. <laughs> it's so awesome. Everybody has to go listen to it. Oh my gosh. I have just been like, my heart just, Burst with how open and sharing people are. It's like incredible. Yeah. I love it. The third thing I'll say is I newly signed on as a clinical advisor for Health in Her Hue, which is a platform that connects Black women to healthcare providers of color for culturally mm. competent and sensitive healthcare. So that's incredible. I love it. That's huge. Healthinherhue.com. Then okay. the last one, 
Oh, and so these are number two, three, four, and five, because number one is my husband and kids. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> as I as I think of them as an afterthought, that's so awful. <laughs> number five is um, I'm actually co-founder of Physicians for Criminal Justice Reform, which is an advocacy organization. One of our biggest points of advocacy is the decriminalization of substance use disorders. So helping people mm-hmm. get to treatment instead of jail. Um, and you don't have to be a physician to join. We need all specialists of all sorts who are passionate about this and, and being human can be your specialty. Um, so that's Physicians for Criminal Justice Reform. Awesome. Is that on, like if somebody goes to Eleanor Health, will they see that or how do they find out more about um, that? That's separate. So you can just Google that the website is pfcjreform.org. Um, but if you just Google Physicians for Criminal Justice Reform, you will okay. find it. Awesome. Awesome. Yes. You and Dr. Jordan are like just killing it in that area. She's, I know she's doing the same thing. She is just, and, and trying to recruit, you know, physicians because it's, um, it sounds like a struggle because it's a lot of money and a lot of years in school. Yeah, It's so true. It it is a long time, Um, but so worth it. Like so worth it. The impact you can make the people who invite you to share their lives with them. Yeah. Thank you a million times. This has just been so helpful. And um, I may be calling you back for a part two. (laughs) I I love it. It's, um, it's always so hard to fit everything into an hour. I can see why some like, I don't know, like Rich Roll and some of these guys have these podcasts that are two and a half, three hours long. And I used to think that was crazy. And now I'm like, well, of course I could do that. I know, right? <laughs> Good talk. Right. I know. Thank you. Thank you. I will list all of these resources in the show notes for people so you can go there and get them. And we'll stay in touch and see what you are doing. I love it. Oh, thank you so much. This has been so fun. Yes. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day. And thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to go to the show notes, you can always find those at brendazane.com forward slash podcast. Each episode is listed there with full transcript, all of the resources that we mention, as well as a place to leave comments if you would like to do that. You might also want to download a free ebook I wrote called Hindsight, Three Things I Wish I Knew When My Son Was Addicted to Drugs. It's full of the information I wish I would have known when my son was struggling with his addiction. You can grab that at brendazane.com forward slash hindsight. Thanks again for listening, and I will meet you right back here next week.